Well, you can take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And as we find Romans 15, I would like to ask you a question, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Uh, do you have hope? It's a good question. Do you have hope? All right, you have your answer? I want you to come at it from a slightly different angle now. Answer another question. Would those who know you best say you have hope? Would those who know you best describe you as a man of hope, a woman of hope? It's a good question, and it is a very timely question. I ask it out of concern. Uh, I have my own struggles in this area, and, uh, and so I wrestle with it for my own reasons. And I ask it out of concern as I, as I take a look around. I'm concerned because I see a lot of people who have no hope at all. As I look around at the world, engage with people, take stock of what's going on around me, I recognize that there are plenty of people who have no hope. Uh, we see... I don't want to spend too much time here. I don't want to belabor the point, but if we, if we care to look, we see the ravages of hopelessness all around us in our society. We really do. There are so many indicators, so many evidences that uh, hope is a commodity in, in short supply. I lay, personally, I lay responsibility for that at the feet of a materialistic worldview. I lay it at the feet of a worldview uh, espoused in our day and age that, look, life is causeless, right? And if life is causeless, then it is meaningless. And if life is meaningless, then it is pointless. And if life is pointless... Uh, it is hopeless. And so Bertrand Russell, right, and I think this, I think this captures where a lot of people are at. They, 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 they refuse to face the reality of their worldview. They refuse to acknowledge it openly. But the ravages of a, of a hopeless society are there for, for all to see. Bertrand Russell penned years ago, there is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment and then nothing. And how that reflects the prevailing mindset for many in our day, and it leads to hopelessness. Look at the drug abuse, my friends. Even around here, the meth and the alcohol abuse. Look at the broken relationships and families. Our nation, highest suicide rate among young people, young men. H how do you explain that? How do we account for it? Except for this simple fact that there is, uh, there is no hope. And the prevailing worldview espoused through the media gives no hope. I'm going to just put it out there. Maybe I'm talking to just one right now. Uh, you fit, you find yourself in that category. I can do no better, and I can do no more, and I need do no more than to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and he is the hope. Uh, my friend, if, if I have described you in any capacity, look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, look no further than his love poured out at Calvary's cross, you don't need to look for any more than the forgiveness that he offers all who repent and believe in him. You need to think of no more than what it means to be received, welcomed by him into the family of God, numbered among the children of God. And my friend, it doesn't get any better than the prospect of eternity. And realize that almighty God keeps his people, guards them, whatever comes in life, however unpleasant life may be in and of itself, 
He guards and he keeps his people for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So again, I ask the question out of concern, do you have hope? If your answer is no, because you have bought into the philosophy of the day, I beg you, I plead with you to take a look at the claims of Christ. Take a look at the person of the Lord Jesus. Take a look at a crucified Savior suspended between heaven and earth. Take a look now at a resurrected, glorified Savior. Take a look at that love, that compassion, grace, mercy poured out upon Calvary's cross. And here, please, his invitation to you, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, that rest is hope. So I ask that question out of concern because I see a lot of people without hope. I ask that question secondly because I see a lot of people today with a misplaced hope. Misplaced hope. Meaning what? They have hope, but it's in the wrong thing, so it really isn't hope. It's a hope that lets them down, and they end up in a state of frustration, disappointment, disillusionment, and uh, I'm guessing you see a lot of that as well. I see a lot of that today, a misplaced hope. I'm going to put it out there. I, I was... I was sitting in the coffee shop, which shall remain unnamed, no need to advertise, and uh, enjoying my coffee. Walked in, there were two couples uh, sitting together, maybe up late 60s, early 70s. I recognized them from one of the churches in Granbury, and uh, three of them were engaged in a very profitable discussion over a recent Bible study they had attended. The fourth was on his, his phone, and his nose was in there, and I watched them. I'm not quite sure why. But I watched them, I think just because of the, the contrast between the three in this conversation and the fourth, as he was engrossed in something on his iPhone, and the brow furrowed, and the eyes closed, and the entire disposition darkened, and finally he blurted out, and I won't repeat what he said, but you know what it had to do with? It had to do with our current political cycle and climate, and out he blurted it there in the midst of the coffee shop, and what followed? His entire countenance, his entire disposition, everything he conveyed in that moment, if anything, there was such a sense of hopelessness. Why? Because he had a misplaced how many in our day right now suffer from a misplaced hope? How many Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, you've been in the dumps now for about three weeks. You're not quite sure why. Maybe it's the news cycle, my friend. And it's because we have our hope in the wrong place. It has been said, and it is worth repeating in our day, and it will bear worth repeating in the days to come. The hope that each of us Christians, those of us who are believers, the hope that each of us have is not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. That is our hope. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in a risen Savior. We have an ultimate authority, and he is not an elected official. Um, he is not appointed by the masses. Uh, he is a king, and he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he is the princes of princes. Our hope must be fixed on him. Whatever transpires in life, Whatever transpires today, tomorrow, down the road, in whatever sphere, you name it, I'm concerned for those whose hope is misplaced because ultimately they are placing it on something of passing temporary value and allowing it to rob them of joy, rob them of peace, and ultimately distract them from what is of supreme importance, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Now I ask the question for a third reason. I'm concerned about those who have no hope. That's right. I point you to the Lord Jesus. I'm concerned for those who have a misplaced hope. I can do no better than point you to the Lord Jesus. And I'm concerned for those of us, and I, I find myself in this category from time to time, those of us with a stifled hope. So our hope's in the right thing, or the right person, to put it better. But it is a, it's a stifled hope. Um, it's not what it should be. And the reason it's stifled is as follows. Uh, we need to acknowledge this about ourselves. The measure of our hope is determined by how we think. Did you catch that? The measure of our hope is determined by how we think. If, we, if as Christians, if as a Christian, I'm not thinking biblically, if I'm not seeing things biblically, therefore my thinking is, is skewed, that will have, I mean, we, we can work through this, you can see it, can't you? That will have a very detrimental effect, therefore, on my hope. I'll share it with you. I experience dark nights of the soul. I don't know if you realize that, but I do. Over the seven years here, I have. There are, there are different reasons for that. I mean, you take a week like we had, four or five days, when you don't see the sunshine, that starts to get to me. I don't know if anybody struggles with that, right? Circumstances, you know, I get, you get the blues, a little melancholy. Uh, different circumstances arise, same result. But I also, I also struggle at times, inexplicably so, with just dark nights of the soul. Just, I just, it's just, I can't explain it. You ever, you ever been there? No one's ever been there. Oh, well, just talk to myself, Stephen. Preach it, brother. Um, you get these dark nights of the soul. And hope, it, it's just kind of gone. You're not quite sure where it went, but it's gone. You know, no, you know it's not where it's supposed to be. More often than not, not always, but more often than not, as I work with myself in prayer before the Lord, I realize, look, there is a correlation here, Stephen. It won't explain everything. It won't resolve everything. But there is a correlation between this lack of hope or the measure of your hope, your wavening hope, and how you're thinking. How you're thinking. Because again, the measure of our hope is determined by how we think. And I've kind of pinpointed eight Wrong ways of thinking, and I want to be very pastoral, and just imagine for a moment, you're in your living room, and we're just having this conversation. I want to share these eight with you, and I pray maybe the light bulb will go on for, for some of you, and, uh, and you'll see just how important this is, and then we'll get to our text and speak to it. But eight, eight wrong, wrong ways of thinking that, have, that, that stifle my hope. Here's number one. Uh, we, we tend to conclude everything is going wrong because something went wrong. Did you hear that? We tend to conclude, definitively so, everything is going wrong because something went wrong. My car broke down, therefore my day is ruined. My relationship fell apart, therefore my life is ruined. We allow one circumstance to dictate our entire outlook, and that will stifle hope, right? Here's the second wrong way we think at times. We see the negative to the exclusion of the positive. So the glass is what? It's not half full. It's half empty, right? We see the negative to the exclusion of the positive. I had 10 things I wanted to accomplish today. I didn't get to the last three. Now I'm discouraged, completely ignoring the fact that I accomplished seven items on the list. Many of us go through life like that. And it will stifle hope. Here's the third wrong way of thinking that I'm sure many of us can relate to. We think we can read people's minds. No, not that we think it. We know we can. Uh, we can read people's minds. I know she ignored me when she walked past me in the hallway. Now it's consuming me. I heard later that she had just experienced a difficult incident with one of her children. But I know better. She ignored me. We think we can read people's minds. And we arrive at all sorts of conclusions that we obsess over and that then stifle our hope. Number four, we focus on things from the distant past. Why did I do that? Why did he do that? What's the point given what happened in 1985? We're overwhelmed by our past mistakes to such a degree that we can't see what's in right in front of our face. We do that a lot. We focus on things from the distant past.
past. Here's number five, the fifth wrong way, skewed way of thinking. We interpret everything in black and white terms. There are no grays. Everything is black and white. I blew it with the kids yesterday. What's the point? I'm a rotten parent. I blew it with the Sunday school lesson this morning. Some of you teachers there. What's the point? I'm a terrible teacher. I'm just giving up. Everything's black and white, and we evaluate everything by one circumstance. Some of us possess unattainable standards. This is the next wrong way of thinking. Six, we possess unattainable standards. I think I should know everything. I think I should do everything. I think I should be everything. I think I should anticipate everything. As a result, we live in a perpetual state of anxiety. Here's number seven. We refuse to see the big picture. Seventh, wrong way of thinking. We refuse to see the big picture. We can't see beyond the immediate, what's happening here and now. Everything is defined by this moment, how I'm feeling right now, what I'm thinking right now, what I'm facing right now. And everything in the past and everything conceivable in the future gets filtered through the present, and we fail to see the big picture. And lastly, number eight, we think too much about ourselves. We think too much about what other people think about us. We obsess over our problems. We allow our problems to meander through our minds so that they cut a cavern so deep we can't find our way out. Eight wrong ways of thinking. Ah, that's not exhaustive. I've picked that up from a couple of authors over the years. Uh, uncertainly, we can add to it. I could add to it from my own experience. But eight wrong ways of thinking that will stifle, just stifle our hope as Christians. That's what I want to speak to. Yes, I asked the question, do you have hope? I asked the question, with those who know you best say you have hope? I ask it, yes, out of concern. There might be someone here who has no hope at all. I point you to the Lord Jesus. You must believe in him. There are those who have a completely misplaced hope. You know, if that's you, you're a Christian, you need to shut it down. You need to hit the Control-Alt-Delete button, right? You just need to start again, recalibrate everything, because there's something skewed. You've, you've, you've got, your, your focus is wrong, and you've got your hope in the wrong place, and you need to get back to the Lord Jesus. And then there's those, and I, I'm going to assume, and I don't think I'm far off the mark, most of us, if not all of us in this room, that uh, stifled joy, you're a Christian, stifled hope, stifled faith, you know it's not what it should be. And I'm submitting to you the reason for it is a wrong way of thinking. And I've given you eight examples. What I want to do now is give you the remedy out of Romans 15. I want to suggest to you that this text should form a well-worn path in your mind. This is a text you must, I must come back to time and time again. It is a prayer from the pen of the Apostle Paul. You need to memorize it if you haven't memorized it already. Stop making up your own prayers and just pray the prayers of Scripture. You'll find them very helpful. And we're going to unpack this prayer and see how it addresses, speaks to stifled hope. It's a verse we looked at a little bit briefly in passing last week. Verse 13 out of Romans 15. Here it is again, the Word of God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There's the prayer request. Now notice it. It's great. It's not just that we might have hope. What is it? That we might abound when you abound in something, you have more than enough. Right? Isn't that the meaning of the word? When you abound in something, you actually have what? A surplus. So this isn't just that you have a hope, you get it right, and that it's kind of stifled there. No, this is a prayer that as Christians, this would be our daily walk, our, our daily experience, this abounding and always abounding and growing and always growing, increasing and always increasing in hope. This is his prayer 
well, I want to get my mind around this prayer, and I want to appropriate it, I want to embrace it, I want to pray this prayer, because I realize this is going to be a daily struggle. And so I, I, I want to put on this hope, the helmet of salvation, if you like Ephesians 6, right? You start to see the armor of God here. And so to really get it, I need to grasp three things. First thing I need to grasp is this. Just as I look at the text, the verse, the prayer, simply this. I know I'm going to abound in hope. I abound in hope. We abound in hope because of the God of hope. Isn't that what he says? May the God of hope fill you. And so if I'm going to abound in hope, I now know the reason why I will abound in hope. This is not the power of positive thinking. I'm not offering up some psychological drivel this morning. This is not chicken soup for the soul. This is not your best life now. It might actually turn out to be quite a terrible and trying life. It might very well. No, I'm talking about biblical hope, real hope. A hope that is not shaped by circumstances. I need to understand this is something that's not within me or, or, or me just putting my best foot forward or adapting, adopting that very stoic outlook, you know, stiff upper lip, old man. That's not what Paul is saying here. Now, he identifies this hope. There is an origin. There is a source. There is an object. God himself. You see, you can actually interpret the statement in two ways. The God of hope, he might be saying God is the object of our hope, or the God of hope meaning what? God is the source of hope. It can mean either of those things. I think he probably has both in view, namely God is the source of hope because he is our object of hope, or he is our object of hope because he is the source of hope. And he is the source of hope. Why? Simply because of who he is. J.I. Packer asked this question a couple of decades ago. It really resonates with me. I pray it resonates with you. What is the best thing in life? Take a moment, answer that, think on it. Don't pretend to be spiritual at this moment. What do you really think is the best thing in life? The best thing in life. Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. You know what his answer was to that question? His book, Knowing God. Many of you are familiar with that book, right? Big theological treatise in which he simply expounds the doctrine of God. Knowing God is the best thing in life. Knowing who he is, and it will bring more joy, more delight, more contentment, more peace, more hope than anything else. And we have such a riveting description of God. Paul provides it. Turn back just for a moment, all the way back to the end of chapter 11. Do you remember this one? Those of you who have been accompanying this series for some times now, you look at what Paul pens there toward the end of chapter 11, picking it up in verse 33. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So his riches and wisdom, they're unfathomable. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What is Paul saying there? He's saying a great deal. At the very least, he's saying this. Look, God has created all things. That's the starting point. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God has created all that we see and we don't see. Not only that, you see, the power that created everything is the same power that now sustains everything and upholds it. If God were to breathe in a deep breath, figuratively speaking, everything would cease to exist. Do you understand that? The only reason you're breathing right now, unconscious of it, is because of the power of the sustaining hand of an almighty God. He gives you life 
Second by second, 24-7, he sustains everything in the universe. Not only does he sustain it, but he controls it. All things are from him, all things are through him, and all things are to him. He governs everything that has transpired since the foundation of the heavens and earth. He governs everything according to the counsel of his will. You see, all things are to him, that is to his glory. Uh, this is the God we worship. This is the God we adore. You see, and, and then we keep building, you understand that this God who is one is actually three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And so we understand that this isn't the God of, of Islam or even Judaism. This isn't a God who is up there completely detached. This isn't a God who is completely beyond us, beyond our reach. No, you see, this is a triune God. This is a God who is actually relational by his very being. Father, Son, and Spirit. He is relational, which means he is what? Loving. Please understand this, my friend. If God isn't triune, he isn't loving. It means in eternity he has nothing to love. But he loves himself, Father, Son, Spirit, eternal bliss. He is a relational being. The second person of God, the Son of God, became man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did so to pay the penalty for my sin. He has risen to the right hand of the Father as a man, a glorified human being, fully God, fully man. The gospel goes forth. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I am made one with the Lord Jesus. Do you know what that means? It means I now have fellowship, communion with triune God. I'm one with the living God by the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Oh, what is the best thing in life? How much I'm making? I don't know. Pleasure, define it. Drugs, alcohol, who wins the next election? how things are going economically. What is the best thing in life? How my favorite NFL team stacking up this year. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. It is knowing God and understanding He is the God of hope. And the only reason we have hope is because of Him the God of hope. Here's the second thing we need to grasp in this prayer. Very straightforward. We understand, we see that we abound in hope as God fills us with all joy and peace in believing. We're back in chapter 15, back into our text, verse 13. You see it there. I just lifted the language right out of the verse. May the God of hope fill you with what? With all joy and peace in believing. So our conclusion is what? Our conclusion is this. We abound in hope as God fills us with all joy and peace in believing. Are you with me? Begs a couple of obvious questions. Number one, as I wrestle with this, okay, believing, what am I supposed to believe? Just kind of, I don't know, ill-defined, wishful thinking, pie in the sky, you know, the way it's kind of described today, oh, he's a person of faith, a man of faith, she's a woman of faith, meaning what? They really, 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 really believe something's going to happen. That's usually what we mean when we talk about faith. It's got nothing to do with scripture. What is biblical faith? Faith is what? Us simply taking God at his word. God has spoken, I see it in his word, and I believe it. You put it in the context, put that statement in the context of chapter 15, Journey with me, travel with me all the way back to verse 4. What did Paul say there by way of reminder? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, what does he say? We might have hope. I think he's filling in some of the thoughts now in verse 13. He's already identified the scriptures. That is the Bible, this book, the Word of God, as the object of our faith. We're supposed to read it. We're supposed to memorize it. We're supposed to hear it. We're to study it. We're to learn it. This book is everything. And as we read this book, oh, we see who God is. 
And we behold the glory of God in the face of his son, the Lord Jesus. We hear the gospel promises and the gospel threatenings. We see the law. We see the gospel. We see the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. And as we do so, what does this create in us? Endurance and encouragement resulting in what? Hope. As the scriptures themselves point us to the object of our hope. Now, I don't want you to miss this. I pray I'm not reading too much into the mind of the Apostle Paul, but I can't help but conclude that he has actually demonstrated this very thing in the text. How has he demonstrated this very thing in the text? Look at verse 3, still in chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written out of the book of Psalms. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now look at verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, in other words, what was written is the scriptures. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So let me, let me, let me demonstrate how this works then. So I'm reading the Bible. And here I am in Romans 15. And I come to verse 3. And I'm reading scripture, and I'm reading scripture, quoting scripture from the Old Testament. And I read this text in which I have a description of the Lord Jesus. I actually see it's the Lord Jesus speaking himself. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And there I get a hint of what? I get a hint of his life of his death, I get a hint of his sacrifice on my behalf. I get a hint, a glimmer there in that scripture of this glorious truth, the just dying for the unjust. There it is in scripture. You see, and then I come to verse 12. And again, I see scripture quoting scripture. And now another reference to the Lord Jesus, the root of Jesse, that great king who will arise from the dynasty of David. He will come. He has come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, he rules now from the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. In him will all the Gentiles, those who believe, will hope. And so as I look at the scriptures, I have this beautiful depiction of Christ's offering on my behalf. Him giving himself for me to secure my salvation. Now I have this stirring description of the Lord Jesus, my Savior, now reigning at the right hand of God. I read this, and I take this to heart, and the result is what? Endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures. And it results in what? Hope. Now put it back into the prayer. Now may the God of hope fill you with what? with all joy and peace in believing. You see, I now know the object of my faith. It's God's word. It's the revelation of God found in this book. It is that revelation that informs me. It is that revelation that instructs me. I see the unfolding of history, God's history, and I'm encouraged. I see the fulfillment of prophecy, and my heart is overwhelmed. I see the Lord Jesus from cover to cover, and my affections are stirred within me. And what's the result? The result is joy and peace in believing. And it flows to what? Hope. It creates and it cultivates hope in the heart. We abound in hope as God fills us with all joy and peace in believing. We turn to the scriptures and we understand that all that the Bible says, especially all that it says concerning the Lord Jesus, these are objective realities. Do you know what that means? These are objective realities. These are historical realities. This means that the truth of the Lord Jesus, his incarnation, for example, his coming into the world, the perfect life he lived, the death he died, his resurrection, his ascension, his present reigning, these are objective realities, meaning they exist apart from me. They do not exist because I say they exist. They exist. I do not define these realities. 
They define me. I don't shape these realities. They shape me. And the scriptures point me to these truths. And I believe in joy and peace, believing the result is encouragement and endurance. And the net result is abounding in hope. Third thing I want us to get out of the definition is this. We abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says, verse 13. May the God of hope, right? We abound in hope because of the God of hope. Fill you, fill you up with all joy and peace and believing. So we abound in hope as God fills us with all joy, all jo joy. It's all inclusive, all joy and peace and believing. And thirdly, we abound in hope. What does he say next? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And so it is the Holy Spirit that makes all of this a reality, efficacious, makes it real to me. The word is fascinating, power of the Holy Spirit, dynamis, dynamis. What English word do you think comes from that? Dynamite, as in boom, dynamite. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the power that gets things done. And so it is the Holy Spirit residing in me who awakens in me a sense of the reality of biblical truth. Sense of its reality, a sense of its beauty, a sense of its glory, a sense and appreciation, heightened appreciation of its majesty. And as that power is at work in me, my faith, my believing is marked by what? Joy and peace as I'm fixed on the scriptures. The result is what? Endurance and encouragement. And the culmination is what? I abound in? I abound in hope. I abound today. I abound tomorrow. As I immerse myself in the scriptures, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God in my heart. Oh, safeguard it, please. I know I need to insert it. Sadly, I need to say it, say it because of the confusion. Let us not sit around thinking the Holy Spirit is going to do this and kind of download everything into our brains like we download something on the computer. I say it a lot. I need to say it again. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. Don't expect anything else, my friend. He will work through the Word of God. And it is the Scriptures as it becomes a reality in us, especially gospel truths fixed upon the Lord Jesus, that yes, faith Faith comes by hearing, right? Hearing by the word of Christ. That faith takes root. Faith grows. It's marked by joy and peace, leading to encouragement and endurance. And I abound in hope. My friend, make that your prayer. That's got to be our daily prayer. Because everything, just about everything that happens in life mitigates against hope. Just about everything will stifle hope. Just about everything will skew, color, twist, distort hope. And how this must be a daily pursuit. How this must be a daily prayer. Let me add to it as we build. As we wrap it up. Let me add to it six words of counsel. I referred to your living room earlier. Let's go back to your living room and imagine we're sitting there. Imagine you're struggling with misplaced hope. You now get it. You've identified some wrong ways of thinking. Uh, you now see the role of Scripture, the role of the Spirit of God, the importance of this prayer. You've got it, the three essential components of that prayer. Let me give you six pastoral words of counsel. Here they are, number one, my friend. Fix your eyes, please. Fix your eyes on what is to come. Okay? Great remedy for stifled hope. Fix your eyes on what is to come. Investments can evaporate. Houses can crumble. Jobs can disappear. Relationships can sour. And health can fail. All right? This is why what I'm saying is different from the power of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking encourages you just to deny it all and live in the non-real world. That's what I'm saying. 
Hope identifies a reality. Hope doesn't deny the harsh reality that is life. Hope doesn't deny the unpleasant circumstances, outright afflictions that we pass through. Hope doesn't run from it. Hope doesn't deny it. But hope rises above it because it is fixed on what will be. What will be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead, the full and final deliverance from sin, and the renovation of the entire cosmos. It has been said, hope is a realistic expectation of and longing for future good and glory based on the reliable Word of God. We must make it our focus. We must focus, fix our eyes on what is to come. Here's the second word of counsel. Fill your mind with God's promises. Fill your mind with God's promises and please be very clear on what He has promised. He has promised eternal spiritual blessings unconditionally. Eternal Spiritual blessings, unconditionally. Read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are eternal, unconditional promises that God extends to his people. We need to fill our minds with them and dwell upon them. And we must recognize also that he has promised present temporal, temporary, material blessings conditionally. Conditionally. Seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and all these things shall be added unto you. First things first. You focus on what is truly important. And the Lord Jesus is promising there, I will take care of the rest. I will meet all of your needs conditionally. What do I mean by conditionally? He provides present day blessings based on what he deems best, not us. What he deems best for his eternal glory and our spiritual good. A failure to grasp that reality will lead to disillusionment. I was speaking with a friend recently, he's a pastor, and he's a little frustrated, frustrated with a young man in his church, I think maybe 19, 20 years of age, who's just kind of derailed in the last month or two, and shaking the fist at God. You know, why would you do this? Uh, why would God do what? This, this young man's grandfather, I think his mid-70s, passed away. And this young man's world has fallen apart. He's angry at God. As if what? As if what? God was just kind of there to do whatever this young man determines to be good or what he deems best or what he wants. This is what I want out of life. This is what I have determined is best. This is what I have set before me as needful and necessary. And if God doesn't get it, give it to me, if God doesn't orchestrate things exactly as I envision and I think is good, I think is perfect, if God doesn't toe the line, well, then I'm going to shake my fist at him. My friend, that isn't God you're talking to. That's some grotesque image you're prostrating yourself before. That's what it is. God has not promised us material blessings unconditionally. He has promised to look after us as he sees best, as he determines is in our best interests. And as far as he is concerned, Christian, do you know what's in your best interest? And do you know what's in my best interest? Not my bank account, not how I'm feeling today, not how life's going to no moral, not how all my relationships are blossoming. No, what he has determined to be in my best interest is that I look a little like the Lord Jesus. That is his goal. His goal is his glory in our transformation. 
And he has promised to work all things together for our good. If we are not clear on that, oh, the disillusionment that will follow. No, we need to be clear on what God has promised and fill our minds with those promises. Here's the third word of counsel. Shape your perspective according to God's sovereign rule over all things. Sovereign rule over everything. God is not a distant tyrant. He has entered history. He has assumed humanity. And he has tasted death in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, and Christ declares it, his entire life, ministry, death. God has our best interests in view. Here is a sweet truth. This infinitely wise, incomparably powerful, and immeasurably good God is my Father who loves me and knows what is best for me even though many times I am clueless as to what is best for me. It only therefore makes sense that I submit myself to his will with respect to present conditions and with respect to future events. What we pray, isn't it? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, revered, feared be your name, your kingdom come, your will be, I sure hope it's my will, your will be done. In other words, may I simply submit to it and understand that you do love me as one of your children, a believer in the Lord Jesus. That you do ultimately orchestrate all things for, 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 for good, Christ-likeness. And that you do orchestrate according to your wise, fatherly disposal everything that transpires in my life, even though at times I can't explain it. Oh, shape your perspective according to God's sovereign rule over all things. Number four, guard your heart from whatever dampens hope. We need to do that. Guard our hearts from whatever dampens hope. If we focus, I mean obsess, over past sins, past pains, past failures, past disappointments, we invite disillusionment. On top of that, please acknowledge this about yourself. I struggle to acknowledge it about myself. We all have spam filters, like on our computers. We all have spam filters that allow the negative to enter our minds while keeping out the positive. It's the way we live. We've all got them. Spam filters. Coupled with the thick cloud of cynicism that hangs over our society, negative thought patterns doom most of us to a perpetual state of unhappiness. You need to guard your heart. You need to disengage, you need to turn it off. As you've heard me say it before, sometimes we need to just shut it down. And disengage from all that dampens hope. Here's the fifth word of counsel. Entrust your circumstances to God who governs them according to his will. And remember this, circumstances do not cause our feelings. We like to think they do because then we don't have to blame ourselves. Well, this happened, therefore I'm feeling this. Please, my friend, understand Circumstances, conditions do not cause our feelings. What we think about circumstances cause our feelings. That's very different. Very different. We, we like the former. Circumstances, because then it's outside of my control. Circumstances control, dictate how I'm feeling, how I am respond. Well, throw my arms up in the air. It's not my fault. It's not true. Circumstances don't determine what we're feeling. It's what we think about our circumstances that cause our feelings. And here's what we must acknowledge and can come to terms with day after day after day. There are things we cannot change. There are countless things we cannot change, but we can change how we respond to all of them. Here's a couple of questions. Here are a couple of questions worth asking. Whenever we find ourselves in unpleasant conditions and circumstances, number one, is it in my power to change this? If so, have at it. Many times it isn't. But there's a question. Number one, is it in my power to change this? 
Question number two, is it in my power to change how I think about this? Yes, it is. And we are called daily to entrust our circumstances to God who governs them according to his will. And here's the sixth. Here's the best one. Best to last. Final word of counsel. Please find your ultimate joy in Christ. Find your ultimate joy in Christ. Centuries ago, I don't know. I, I'm guessing it's probably same, still true in some churches. But you go back a couple of centuries into the Scottish pulpits. And um, all of them. The Scottish pulpits like this, they would often be much larger. They would have a bronze little uh, plaque tacked to the top of the pulpit. You wouldn't be able to see it. Most people probably never even knew it was there. But there it was, tacked, fixed permanently to the top of the pulpit, this little plaque. And there it was, staring uh, the preacher uh, in the face. Constant reminder. And you know what it said? Sir, we would see Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Sir, we would see Jesus. It was speaking the voice of the congregation. It was speaking the voice of the people of God. And it was to serve as a reminder, a constant reminder to the minister, to the preacher, to make sure he was pointing people to Jesus. I can do no better, therefore, than to end on this note, number six, find your ultimate joy in Christ. Learn it, memorize that stanza out of that hymn from ages ago. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our Heavenly Father, as we conclude in your presence with the proclamation of your word, we do make this simple stanza our heartfelt prayer that you would open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, that truly you would impress his glory upon us, that we would see what it cost him to leave his throne for a manger, a crown of glory for a crown of thorns, that we would see him in his humiliation as he walked here on earth, enduring the hostility and the reproaches of men, and that we would see him in the garden as he pours forth the agony of his soul as he contemplates all that would transpire upon the cross. That we would see him hanging there. That we would feel the darkness, understand his forsakenness, and recognize that it was our sin that drove the nails into his hands. Our Father, we pray that we would see our risen Lord we would see him now in all his glory at your right hand, hearing you having declared that he is your begotten son in whom you are well pleased. And in the Lord Jesus, may we invest all our hope. May he be the object of our faith, the cause of our joy, the source of our peace. And we ask it in his name. Amen.